Welcome to True Talk on WMNF 88.5 uh, with Ahmed and Summer. Summer is traveling. It's me, Ahmed, on the radio. So on today's um, program, we're going to be speaking to, or not speaking to, but speaking about a, um, a young women who were trafficked to ISIS uh, as teenagers. And the outcome of that, one of them specifically was stripped of her citizenship in Britain, but new revelations have turned out that she was actually trafficked by a uh, Western intelligence agent um, who's responsible for that. Um, should she have a chance to be able to go back to Britain? Um, also, whatever happened to ISIS? That and your phone calls. This is True Talk on WMNF. We'll be right back. <laughs>
Welcome back to True Talk on WMNF 88.5. This is Ahmed Badir, and uh, that was Balti, a Tunisian rapper. The song is called Hasra. And um, uh, a story caught my eye last week about a new book that's uh, come out by a British author that makes these claims and has renewed the story of a young woman named Shamima Begum. She's a British... uh, um, citizen or former citizen because she has since been stripped of her citizenship. But this uh, book, and this is according to uh, several media outlets um, in Britain, but I'm reading here from an Al Jazeera report that says, a spy working for the Canadian intelligence smuggled British schoolgirls Shamima Begum and her friends into Syria in 2015, according to a new book and British media reports that prompted demands for an official inquiry. The Secret History of the Five Eyes by Richard Kerbage, a former security correspondent of the Sunday Times, said that the United Kingdom later conspired with Canada to cover up the role of the Canadian Security Security Intelligence Service, CSIS, in the case of Begum, who married an ISIL or ISIS fighter. A CSIS spokesperson uh, told the BBC he could he could not quote publicly comment on or confirm or deny the specifics of the CSIS investigations, operational interests, methodologies, or activities. Karabaj's book, based on interviews with world leaders and more than 100 intelligence officials, was published um, last Wednesday. Well, it would have been two weeks ago. Five Eyes is the intelligence sharing. Alliance between the UK, the US, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. So this alliance between the UK, US, Canada, and Australia, and New Zealand would have meant that all those countries knew about this uh, agent, um, who was later described as a double agent, who was both working uh, with and for ISIS, as well as Canadian intelligence unit. Uh, the article goes on to say, according to British media reports, the UK Scotland Yard, that UK Scotland Yard was told that the teenagers were trafficked into Syria by Rashid, who was a double agent working for ISIL, for the ISIL group, and the Canadian intelligence. He was recruited by Canada as a spy when he applied for asylum at the Canadian embassy in Jordan. An inquiry uh, was demanded on Tuesday as it emerged that Canada knew about the teenager's fate but kept silent while British Metropolitan Police Service ran an international search for the trio. So imagine this. These teenagers, 15 years old, were trafficked into Syria. Their whereabouts were not known. Um, However, and... um, her family did not know, and British police were looking and searching for her. They knew she had traveled overseas and then disappeared, traveled to Turkey and then disappeared. Uh, but the British intelligence knew all along where she was, but refused to say. And in fact, later on, when she regretted um, her decision to join ISIS and wanted to return back home to the United Kingdom, the UK claimed that she was stripped of her citizenship and was not allowed to return. And she was willing to go back and face the consequences, including jail if, he, if, if, it, if she had to. Um, however, um, she was stripped of her citizenship. 
this article goes on to say there was no mention that the British authorities knew how she was smuggled into Syria in last year's Supreme Court judgment upholding the decision to bar her from returning to the UK. So there's this judgment by the UK foreign ministry to bar her and strip her of her citizenship and not allow her to return to the UK. But there was never any mention by British authorities or two to British authorities or in the court that she was actually smuggled and trafficked by um, a Canadian you know, intelligence unit or somebody working for them. And none of that was mentioned. Now, a 15-year-old, a teenager, if she's trafficked into, you know, sexually trafficked or uh, joins some sort of gang or, or something like that, you often, you don't blame the child, you don't blame the teenager. It's obvious she was trafficked. But however, it seems when it comes, when it came to Begum or those who were trafficked into ISIS, even if it was done at the hands of Western allies and British authorities knew about it, they somehow um, are classified as something else, that they're a threat. Um, Begum, who's now 23, remains in a camp in northern Syria. She is to renew her case at the Special Immigration Appeals Commission in November. So there's a case that's going to be coming up. Um, some people tweeted about it. Um, you know, the Times of you, of um, of London uh, had also written um, the an article with the headline, Western Spy took Shamima Begum to Syria. And in fact, what he was doing when he was doing that, he was um, actually recording and documenting and taking photographs of all the passports or IDs of the people, Western individuals he was trafficking into Syria uh, to ISIS. And he was documenting it and sharing that information with Canada, and then Canada shares it with um, its Western allies, including the United States and the UK and Australia. Um, so they knew who was there. They knew who he had trafficked. And um, I remember there was a story of another um, young woman who was American, an American citizen who also feared, uh, faced the same situation where she was not allowed to return to the United States because she went to Syria and she married a ISIS fighter. Um, which brings to mind, like, is it their fault that they join ISIS? Um, at what age are they held responsible for their actions and treating like, treated like adults? Um, especially if they're trafficked and basically ended up just not necessarily fighting, but trafficked into a marriage or some sort of relationship with an ISIS fighter and it's being done at the hands of Western intelligence officers. And now, you know, in the book, it also admits or according uh, to Shamima, and I guess Shamima didn't know that they're a Western intelligence officer. That's why she never brought it up. And her own um, lawyers probably would not have known because, you know, they thought that this guy who was pretending to be working for ISIS, or in fact was working for ISIS. They didn't know at the same time that he's working for um, Western intelligence units, which brings up the question, how many other, you know, fight, uh, not necessarily uh, young girls, but actual foreign fighters, would intelligence officers, had intelligence officers helped smuggle into Syria to join ISIS? And why would they do that? Um, 
you know, some people in Washington describe something, you know, that uh, about the war and the civil war that was happening in Syria and the terrorist groups that actually flourished there, that that is something that, they, that some elements in Washington were not necessarily opposed to. They, you know, they describe it as some sort of, you know, the hornet's nest or, you know, to or a place where you, you know, are able to recruit all these foreign fighters or all these uh, jihadi wannabes or individuals that have tendencies to want to be in a jihad or some sort of um, terrorist group to all be, you know, um, in one place. So it achieved a different goal. And it just, it just brings up all types of... Um, things to memory, how the United States and Western countries dealt with ISIS, how they ignored Bashar al-Assad and his regime and what they were doing to the Syrian people. And it wasn't even though after President Obama said, you know, that using chemical weapons was a red line, uh, he didn't do anything about it. However, what appeared to be a red line was when ISIS started showing up on the scene and doing these ridiculous and horrific um, made-for-YouTube a sensational videos of uh, beheading people and killing them live on tel- or you know on um, streaming it online, and that's when the United States decided to get involved or to be actively involved in the bombings. And they weren't bombing to try to free the Syrian people, but they were bombing ISIS or ISIS units. And there are all these theories about how ISIS came about, who allowed it to you know to exist, um, which we could you know actually look at. But I want to, um, and I think I have it here. Let me see if this is it. But there's a short uh, video. Um, about Shamima. But maybe this is not it, actually. Okay, hold on. Let me see. Let me see if I can play this for you. This is True Talk on WMNF. Okay, well, that was the music. Let me... Turn down the music. It's all coming. Everything is being fed through a computer now. So music is coming through the computer. Um, video clips are coming through the computer. I think this is it. The investigation has revealed a schoolgirl who fled Britain to join the Islamic State group was smuggled into Syria by a Canadian intelligence agent. Shamima Begum left London along with two friends when she was 15. She met the agent, Mohammed al-Rashid, at a bus station in Turkey in 2015, and she is currently challenging the removal of her British citizenship, arguing that she was a victim of trafficking. A forthcoming BBC podcast on this story, I Am Not a Monster, has been investigating all of this. It's presented by Josh Baker, and Josh joins us now. Josh, there is endless fascination about the story of Shamima, as you know. Right now, it is the number one story on the BBC News website. But can you take us back, remind us of what we know about Shamima's journey to Syria, firstly? So Shamima Begum was 15 when she left East London with two school friends. That was back in February of 2015. Uh, They took a plane to Istanbul where they met a people smuggler and they then made their way through Turkey to IS-controlled Syria. 
And once there, they disappeared until about four years later, where Shamima emerged from the ashes of the so-called IS caliphate. Now, at that point, the British government decided that Shamima Begum was a threat to the country and removed her citizenship. And since then, she's been in a detention camp in northeast Syria. And in the investigations that you were doing as part of your podcast, what have you uncovered? So the man who facilitated Shamima's journey through Turkey is called Mohammed Rashid. Now, we have obtained a dossier of hundreds of pages of information about him. And what it reveals is that he was part of a highly organised IS people smuggling network. And as well as moving people, he was also documenting evidence of their IDs. So he was keeping records of the people he helped. Now, he says in an interview with authorities that he was doing this in order to pass information to the Canadian embassy in Jordan. He basically claims that he had two sort of handlers there and that he was working as an agent for them. We have been able to speak to a senior intelligence officer who has confirmed to us that Mohammed Rashid was indeed providing information to Canadian intelligence. Where is Mohammed Rashid now, Josh? What's happened to him? So Mohammed Rashid was arrested in Turkey not long after Shamima Begum made it to Syria. And he's been in jail there ever since. It's been about seven years now. It's unclear uh, when he will be released. And you've gathered all of this information. It's going to be in the podcast. Have you managed to put it to the various authorities, the UK authorities and the Canadians? Uh, we have, yes, as is the way with um, matters of national security, both uh, Canadian intelligence and uh, the British government have said that they do not comment on uh, intelligence and security matters. Josh, really looking forward to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Not a Monster, presented by Josh Baker on... So that was a report on BBC about the story of Shamima Begum. Um, again, a, um, a young uh, British, I guess she's... Uh, her parents are from Bangladesh, or her roots, but she's born in Britain, grew up there. She's a product of Britain. Uh, at some time when she was 15, her and a couple of her friends were smuggled into Syria um, to be by, by what now has come out in 2022 by a British or a Canadian spy. Um, at the time, when she disappeared, there was a worldwide manhunt for her. Uh, finally, she showed up that she's in Syria with ISIS and she had married an ISIS fighter um, who was later killed and she has a child from um, that marriage and she had been trying to return to the UK but British authorities refused to let her come back. In fact, stripping her of her citizenship, which was later appealed to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court upheld that decision that she is not allowed to come back because she joined she joined ISIS um, and uh, now there's some sort of appeal that's going to happen again in November. But now there are calls for an independent inquiry about the role of this Canadian spy, uh, Canadian intelligence, and uh, the UK intelligence, which knew her whereabouts and how she was smuggled into Syria to join ISIS, uh, and that they didn't act. They didn't intervene. Uh, they didn't treat her like a trafficked uh, you know, teenager. Uh, but as, enemy, as an enemy, uh, which raises the question, should you know, citizens of Britain, Canada, and the United States be stripped of their citizenship when they join 
uh, even nefarious or evil groups like ISIS, by joining those types of groups, uh, can the government actually strip your, your citizenship? Or should you be able to, like other criminals, be, you know, have your day in court and defend yourself or have that opportunity? Where in the Constitution does it say that you can be stripped of your citizenship? I know there's things like treason, but even people are, you know, that are held or charged with treason, do they actually lose their citizenship or are they punished for their treason? Our phone number is 813-239-9663, 813-239-9663. With these revelations that um, Western intelligence officers uh, and agencies played a role in smuggling people to join ISIS, um, does that concern you? What should be done about people like Shamima Begum um, and others, Western fighters that or individuals in that situation, teenagers that were smuggled into Syria or went to join ISIS. Should they be able to return to their home countries and be charged or be held, you know, responsible or held accountable or at least have their day in court? Or do they just get barred forever and stay outside? Is that the way uh, to deal with them? And what are the consequences and you know, who in the government should be held accountable for participating in these things? Is that just how spy games works? That, you know, you're able to pretend that you're an ISIS fighter when, or an ISIS recruiter when you're really working for the Canadians or the Americans or the British? How many other spy agencies, Western spy agencies, were involved in recruiting um, ISIS fighters and sending them into battle? And who did that actually uh, benefit? Our email is dj at wmnf.org, dj at wmnf.org. Um, and let me, again, um, actually I'm doing this live as we speak. Um, about the uh, young woman that joined ISIS from the United States. Um, yeah, this was the Alabama, she's from Alabama, um, Alabama woman, this was a headline here in February 2019, I think Pompeo had said this, Alabama woman who joined ISIS can't return to you to the U.S., and her name was Huda Muthanna. Uh, Ms. Huda Muthanna is not a U.S. citizen and will not be admitted to the United States, Pompeo said, even though she was born in the United States, but I think... She does not have any legal basis, no valid U.S. passport, no right to passport, nor any visa to travel to the United States. Now she's 24 um, at that time in 2019. Um, and in her story, um, it, there was some confusion there because they're trying to claim, they're claiming that her dad was a diplomat at the time when she was born in America, so she wasn't in fact uh, eligible for a passport. Uh, most people born in the United States are uh, accorded the so-called birthright citizenship under Immigration Nationality Act. A person born in the U.S. to a foreign diplomatic officer is not subject to U.S. laws and is not automatically considered. And the uh, article in the Associated Press went on to say that the 24-year-old who joined the Islamic State after becoming radicalized says she regrets aligning herself with the terrorist organization and wants to return. Um, so, I mean, it's a, it's kind of a dilemma, 
uh, how to deal with those individuals. But definitely, I mean, when you look at a situation where these are teenagers, a teenager, you know, can easily, especially if you're online, can be easily swayed into one way or another uh, and impacted by other people if they're groomed by whether they're groomed for sex, you know, for you know, I guess uh, trafficking for sexual reasons, or they're trafficked in this situation for terrorism. Um, in fact, she didn't actually Shamima and others. They didn't actually um, join the fighting. I guess they were trafficked to become brides or wives of ISIS fighters, and then once they got there, they realized that they're. Um, you know, they were deceived and uh, regretted their decision. Um, are they doomed or, you know, they're not allowed to ever come back and never be able to face or, you know, be punished, for example, for the decisions they made and get another chance? Um, can the actual, can the government strip you of your citizenship because you participate with such groups? Now, of course, ISIS is horrific, but you're talking about a situation where these young people were trafficked, or at least in the case that has now been confirmed out of Britain by a Canadian spy, um, and these were teenagers that were, you know, 15 years old, shouldn't they be able to return? And what happens when they, you know, return? And remember just how big of a deal that the United States made about ISIS. Now, where is ISIS today? And it, even back then, I remember on this show and in other uh, forums, I argued that ISIS is not such an you know, uh, immediate threat to the United States or an imminent threat, that they're far away, that they're limited, they're surrounded. Yeah, they grabbed a lot of land, but most of that land was not occupied anyway. It was just desert. And um, they were able to do that because there was a power vacuum and a security vacuum in both Iraq and Syria. Um, during that time, but they were limited. They would not be able to expand much further. But the United States government or military treated it much differently. In fact, they you know, sent in fighter jets and they were bombing nonstop, which also brought in uh, the um, Russians to also join the bombing. At one point or another, there's so many uh, governments that were launching, you know, raids as far as air raids within Syria that it was just getting ridiculous and the people that were suffering the most were the Syrian people and you know as far as liberating Syrians from ISIS uh, well it ended up being that yes ISIS was defeated which was bound to happen anyway even if it wasn't at the hand of the United States they weren't able to expand much further they were landlocked their resources were being limited but some people even came up and had these theories that Western uh, agencies were not so much opposed of ISIS's existence in that area because it provided a pretext to continue uh, going to war in that region. Um, but in reality, was that the right method to go about it? Uh, again, uh, I don't think so. I think that actually increases uh, terrorism and violence when you go to launch a whole war to um, against terrorist organizations or groups because they're not traditional, um, you know, military. They're not. Tra they're more like gangs. Uh, they use guerrilla warfare. They use 
unconventional means uh, for their fightings. They do, um, you know, these um, bombings and suicide bombings. Um, there should be other ways to deal with criminal elements and not necessarily launch an entire military. And the other th- part that was frustrating about ISIS or the conversation surrounding ISIS in the United States and other parts uh, in the West was that somehow that this was depicted as some sort of form of Islam, that these groups had anything to do with Islam, when the reality is that um, ISIS or ISIL, whatever you want to call it, uh, has evolved over time. Now that we hear that ISIS actually exists in Afghanistan and they're fighting against the Taliban, uh, they're not, they don't see eye to eye on things. The Taliban is an enemy of ISIS uh, in uh, Afghanistan. Uh, but the origins of ISIS goes back to, uh, to the aftermath of the invasion of Iraq of 2003. And this is something I often argued that had there not been an invasion of Iraq in 2003, and the horrific way that the George Bush administration carried out that war and the aftermath of that war, where they actually sent all the former military, the entire military of the Iraqi government, of Saddam Hussein, the former government, they um, removed them from power and they sent them all home. It's not that they only just took the leadership and got rid of them or arrested them. No, they just said, well, all of you are fired. You're no longer part of the military. We're going to create a whole new military. This was Paul Bremer at the time, which was a huge mistake. Because guess what? If you have career military officers, and now they're told to just go home and you have no future, you're not part of the future Iraq, what do you think those people that spent their entire life in the military are going to do? They turned their forces and their expertise against the invading country, which was the United States and their allies. And um, it became now, you know, most experts will tell you that ISIL was uh, uh, an alliance between uh, an Al-Qaeda offshoot. It wasn't even, you know, the full Al-Qaeda. It was a kind of elements of Al-Qaeda that were in that area um, left over and... um, and elements of the defeated uh, Ba'ath Party. This was the party of Saddam Hussein and their military. Those two groups or elements of them joined together and they formed ISIS or ISIL. They were using religious rhetoric oftentimes. However, they themselves were not necessarily religious. They're, you know, very cruel, brutal. And... um, Often, you know, they would say that this was some sort of uh, extremist Sunni group, when in reality, most of the leadership and the generals that were in ISIS were part of the former Iraqi military. They were not doing it for religious reasons, um, but they were doing it more so because they wanted to um, revenge or avenge what they had gone through with the uh, war in Iraq, and then it grew from there, uh, and it became something else. And there are even stories that within Syria itself, that Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, released many of these types of fighters, um, fanatics and others, from his jails uh, who ended up joining ISIS and helping it grow, uh, that group, only so he could also use it as a pretext to warn the West that, hey, if Bashar al-Assad, the Assad regime is not in power, then that's 
the alternative. Um, I want to get your reaction to these things um, about young women, especially the story coming out of the UK about Shamima Begum, who was a teenager that was trafficked into ISIS. Should she be allowed to return? And similar individuals who left the United States uh, as teenagers and regret joining groups like ISIS. Should they be allowed to return? Especially that it comes out now that some of these people were actually trafficked and sent into Syria by uh, Western intelligence forces. Um, our phone number is 813-239-9663. And our email is dj at wmnf.org. And um, we'll take um, phone calls as uh, they come in. Um, actually, there is a short recap here about who ISIS and how ISIS now, and I mentioned, you know, how is ISIS evolving? Um, there's a report that was on um, uh, Al Jazeera called ISIL 2.0 because now they're becoming a franchise. You know, they've been, dis- they've been disrupted in Syria. Many of these fighters um, went to other places. And some of them, ISIS just became a cause. It got so much attention and the way that it was fought by Western powers that it actually caused it to grow and not necessarily grow as a, um, you know, some sort of one unit, but more of an ideology that other people started identifying with it. Other, you know, whether they're uh, people with mental illness or individuals who are disgruntled, but they started voluntarily identifying and just giving their allegiance to ISIS, even though they've never been part of it, they haven't been trained by it, but they just share in the same kind of perverted ideology uh, remotely, and they would just take it upon themselves to carry carry out attacks within their own places. So I want to play that in a minute, but first I'm going to go to Doug in um, Clearwater. Doug, go ahead. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Uh, You're welcome. I have have one point to make. Um, The Middle East, I don't know. I was thinking about this while I was waiting. But um, I don't know. Maybe it's a But What is your point? So far, all I heard is I don't know. (laughs) So go ahead and tell me what your point is. I could see where the Middle East will hate us for a long, long time. Why, do you, why would you say that? Well, I'm not sure we did anything for Afghanistan. I'm not sure we did anything for Iraq. We're in conflict with Iran. Well, I mean, it's not only it's not only that we didn't do anything for, and thank you, Doug, for your call. It's not only that we didn't do anything for Afghanistan or Iraq. We actually brought our bombs, our military, brought a lot of destruction to that country. A lot of people were killed um, in Iraq, in Afghanistan. There was a lot of suffering. Uh, going back, you know, 20 years. As you remember, all of this happened after the tragic events of 9-11, but there was not a single Iraqi on those planes. 
there's not a single Afghan, uh, Afghani, Afghani on those planes. Um, 14 of the hijackers, as it was said before, are from Saudi Arabia. We've never been to war against Saudi Arabia, and I'm not advocating for war against them, but if you want to make the, you know, if you want to punish the people, or if you want to go by nationality and punish people, well, it wasn't people from Afghanistan. Now, there are individuals who say, well, the Taliban at the time harbored or allowed bin Laden to exist. Well, why did bin Laden even go to Afghanistan to begin with? Bin Laden was from Saudi Arabia. Uh, you'd have to go back another 20 years when the United States and Saudi Arabia were recruiting fighters to come into Afghanistan to fight against the Soviet Union. And they trained and equipped and provided weapons and training to these foreign fighters that were at the time fighting a common enemy, which was the Soviet Union, and they were teaching them, you know, guerrilla warfare and how to make bombs and how to shoot down planes and carry out all these things. And after the Soviet, Soviets left, the United States left that entire region, left Afghanistan, destroyed as it was, and didn't help rebuild it. And then there was a power grab. All these warlords were fighting each other. And there was a lot of violence that was happening. Out of that, the Taliban emerged as some sort of law and order, no nonsense. They're going to crush everybody. And that's what they did. And they brought with them a very uh, harsh interpretation of uh, penal codes and how they treated women or mistreated women and subjugated women. Um, but they provide some sort of safety when it comes to um, you know, lawlessness. They got rid of the drug trade, um, but they didn't allow women to go to school. They you know, did a lot of other horrible things. But then was that the reason that the United States went to war to liberate these women? And oftentimes we hear that that's the case, but the reality is they went to war there um, because of a pretext that they want to go to war. And instead of dedicating so many Troops on the ground, they, you know, decided to build an alliance with a group called the Northern Alliance. These are the same people that was that were driven out by the Taliban, that were warlords that the Taliban had driven out. So the United States partnered with them to take over territory that they lost. And some of those warlords were just as harsh as the Taliban when it comes to cultural things. Um, and now we know the reality. 20 years later, that same country was handed back over to or left to the same Taliban that was pushed out of power 20 years before. So what was exactly, what was exactly, you know, achieved by 20 years of bombings? Except as Doug had mentioned that those people hate us. And, you know, one thing that I didn't like or was basically a lie that George Bush repeated in the neocons around him was that those people hate us in America because of the way we live. Um, the people there now most likely hate America because of what America did or its military did in their countries for the past 20 years. And if we live in a democracy and we as citizens did not vote these people out of power, um, then what does that say about us? Or we didn't, But a lot of us did speak out. A lot of us went to marches and marched against the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan and said, no more war. But all of that somehow did not make enough a difference, of a difference. And in fact, eventually when uh, 
Bush's term was over and and we elected President um, Barack Obama, which was a historic election. We thought things would be different, but the wars continued under Obama. The endless wars in Iraq and Afghanistan continued. The drone wars continued under President Obama. Uh, Chris from Tampa. Go ahead. Uh, Shokan Dazilan, uh, thanks so much for having such an important show on WMNF and just in general to WMNF for making sure that so many different kinds of stories and voices are on the radio. Thanks, uh, Chris. It's just such a incredibly important thing, and uh, I certainly don't have any answers or profound questions. Um, I just wanted to say, to say thank you that it's so great that you guys are talking about this stuff, and to the extent that you can continue to expose people to local happenings um, related to uh, the Middle East or uh, Islam or other underrepresented voices from uh, that part of the world. I think it can be great for people to connect to um, local tangible things and, and really hang out with folks and, and experience whether it's culture or movies or activities or food or, or something. I, I was fortunate enough through my work to get to live in Afghanistan for two years and live in Jordan for a couple of years, and um, I think it's just so valuable to get to know uh, places as, as real people, and the thought I'll leave you with is that um, it, Afghanistan's situation is extremely sad, but all those kids who got education, um, mm. um, that that's something, it's like a vaccination that no one can reach in their brain and, and take that out, and so I think there are some ways... Uh, that that there are some good deep seeds that are that are still there, if, if you will, and and I think that it's a it's a great failure that we we couldn't make that political uh, bargaining happen that could have included the different elements of society that were so different uh, from ours, different yet not different because the conservatives uh, around the world are are big on law and order as we know, but uh, a few thoughts, but but the main one is the more you can thread in to this very important show positive opportunities for Americans to expose themselves. My hope is that that will lead them to being um, less knee-jerk and making fewer generalizations. But thanks for your incredible work every week. Well, thank you for that, Chris. And um, yes, I mean, there were many young people that were that received an education, especially in uh, Kabul. Some of the villages were not as fortunate there was a lot of corruption that's happening there. So a lot of the money that went there for these types of projects just ended up lining the pockets of these warlords. Um, but one of the sad things that I saw, especially with the exodus out of um, Afghanistan, was the amount of people that would have been had the skill set or that were running the country or helping run the country, the educated class that were rushing to try to escape, um, uh, the brain drain that would have had on that country and how can it succeed? And especially afterwards now that that group is in power, the Taliban uh, freezing their assets and not even giving, just basically it's at the end just punishing the Afghan people. How can you have schools? How can you have hospitals if the country doesn't have any money and is basically there are all these sanctions against it? Um, so does that mean just unless unless America has a puppet regime in power somewhere, then we're going to punish everybody. I think that also sends a bad message. So I hope our policies change. I hope the Biden administration sees past that, that it's better to try to 
maybe it, it, it's going to take more work, but to try to reform groups like the Taliban and bring them into the international community and show them that there's a better way to do things rather than just create more hostility. Um, I mean, you know, things in Saudi Arabia when it comes to treatment of women and things like that are not that much different uh, than necessarily Afghanistan. I mean, sure, now it is uh, women are able to drive and stuff in Saudi but for a long time, the United States tolerated that and continued to do business and ignored the plight of women in countries like that because it served American interests. So, um, yes, there were some positive things. And there have been, there's been some people that have been resettled that I, I actually met here in Tampa Bay from Afghanistan. And their migration here hasn't been that easy, but um, they're educated and they're looking forward to having a better life here. So... Um, yeah, thank you for your support, and thanks for listening to our show. Thank you. Um, Jack from Tampa. Now, our phone number, by the way, is 813-239-9663, 813-239-9663. Our email is dj at wmnf.org. Um, I think it gives you a much... I'm going to Jack next, but um, so thanks for holding that long. Um you know, traveling the world and going to those places makes a huge difference um, because you get to know those societies, you get to experience those cultures firsthand and not just basically believe or learn about them from, you know, what the media wants you to know about them in these small sound bites, which often, you know, serve the interest of the oligarchs or the, you know, the elite class or the government. Um Jack from Tampa, go ahead. Yeah, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. Thank you. Good, good. I'm sorry. Remind me your name? Uh, Ahmed. Ahmed. Uh, yeah, one thing I just wanted to ask you, and then I'll, I mean, two things. Uh, the first was the original thing, and that was, uh, I hear in the news kind of various stories of how ISIS or ISIL kind of gets along. It doesn't get along with the Taliban. And the so I wanted to ask you, uh, to give me, you know, your understanding of what is the relationship between ISIS and the Taliban, and also the ISI. Um, the um, and that's the first thing. The second thing is you said something about how, and that's the first question. The second one is if you could comment or respond to, I guess, my response to your. You made a statement a little while ago of how to the effect that the United States kind of invaded Afghanistan like on a pretext, which kind of seemed to imply that there was an underlying motivation to do so. And I guess my understanding of the U.S.'s uh, invasion of Afghanistan was a direct response to 9-11, because basically that's where Al-Qaeda was based. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't get the sense that... I mean, it was different in Iraq, because Bush, you know, had, this, had an agenda to kind of invade Iraq, and so as did Cheney for like, you know, a decade. Um, after the after the first Gulf War, but in, in the case of Afghanistan, I mean, I don't think I don't think there was any desire just to dive into Afghanistan, uh, and they were looking for an excuse. I think they, I mean, politically they had obviously no, no choice but to respond to 9/11. I mean, you can argue how that it was botched, but but anyway, so those those are my two uh, two questions, and I'd be interested to hear you kind of more elaborate on the first one if you can. Um. Yeah, so thank you for that. Uh, I mean, I'm not an expert. I kind of know a little bit about the region, but my understanding is um, as far as the relationship between the Islamic State and the Taliban now in Afghanistan, now, 
Islamic State is not a monolith. So, yeah, it started in um, Iraq after the um, the invasion. And it, like I said, it's it was an offshoot of... Uh, an offshoot of an Al-Qaeda unit in Afghanistan or in Iraq, and former Ba'ath Party regime leaders and military officials that were sent home and, you know, fired from their positions after uh, the fall of uh, the invasion of Iraq. Paul Bremer, who was administrator at the time under Bush, basically told all these uh, military folks from Iraq that you have no future, you're going home. They joined forces with elements of Al-Qaeda, an offshoot of it, and they formed this ISIS. And um, they had the military training, they had the know-hows, they had the connections, and they made you know things very difficult for the United States there. Eventually, after the United States left, these uh, elements were there, and they were able to take vast swath you know, of territory in Iraq and eventually Syria. One, because a lot of the people in Iraq and Syria did not resist them. Uh, because they were already living under harsh conditions. So um, after they're defeated there, you know, in 2019 in uh, Syria, uh, that they became kind of a more of an ideology and other groups like ISIS in in different countries in Africa, ISIS in um, uh, Afghanistan and other places started forming on their own without any, like, leadership to the original ISIS. So now ISIS... Um, or IS in Afghanistan, uh, which is also, they call themselves the Khorasan, Khorasan province, which uh, it's a province, um, you know, in the Afghan area, Afghanistan area. Um, they, you know, started having um, difficulty or problems, conflicts with the Taliban. Taliban is focused on Afghanistan. And they believe they are from Afghanistan and they're focused on Afghanistan and they want to be able to kick out um, the puppet regime that was there. And they are more structured uh, as far as, you know, their intentions. Some of them are foreign fighters. Some of them were fighters from the time, even going back to fighting against the Soviets. Um, The Islamic State, um, you know, they have a different... you know, goals. I'm not, I don't have, they tend to be more uh, religiously, they have this kind of uh, more rigorous, they're even more extreme when it comes to their interpretation of religion than the Taliban themselves. So maybe we'll do a whole segment on on, on who they are, but um, ISIS in Afghanistan um, are responsible for some of these attacks that have happened, uh, including um, you know, the bombing that supposedly took place during the evacuation that happened near um, the, the airport and other uh, attacks that, that they've been doing. And the Taliban is going to war with them right now um, uh, in, in Afghanistan. When it comes as far as the pretext, you know, elements of the Bush administration, and I think more and more people have written about this, um, you know, including the Washington Post, and there's something called the Afghanistan Papers, a secret history of the of the war. Um, you know, you can go to the Washington Post and read about that. But there is all these articles before, or all this uh, writing that was taking place. Bush and some of the other neocons, they were part of something called the New American Century Project, 
the new you know project for the new American century, and they had all these plans, and they were you know uh, they were founded by people like uh, Robert Kagan, John Bolton. Uh, they included uh, Bill Crystal, Dick Cheney. Uh, these folks during the the Clinton years were forming these ideas, and they were basically saying that in order for America to have its dominance for the next century and this was a think tank, the project for the new American century, that they need to have another event like a Pearl Harbor event. And, you know, they had on their radar things like, you know, Iraq, that they would go to war with it, and they were looking for pretext to happen. 9-11 provided that Pearl Harbor moment where they were able to convince the Bush administration or George Bush to go to war to these different places. As far as the pretext to go to war specifically in Afghanistan, um, you know, there's speculation that you know that Afghanistan, uh, the Taliban under um, their rule, were not allowing for this pipeline to go through their country, which they were in talks uh, with. You know, even Dick Cheney before, and when he was in his role as Halliburton, that they were refusing to provide this pipeline. Um, and there, you can Google Dick Cheney meeting or. You know the Taliban meeting in um, you know with uh, elements of or the United States uh, as far as this pipeline that was uh, supposed to take place. So that might have been the pretext. Um, I'd have to look into it. Um, I wasn't really prepared to talk about that today. Um, I have a time for just uh, one more or two calls. So quickly, if you could just take one minute, I'm going to go to uh, Bruce in Tampa. Uh, Bruce, go ahead. Hey. Uh- Yes, I'd like to echo what Chris said earlier, that WMNF really is a voice in the wilderness, giving diversity and rationality a unique place in the uh, desert that is commercial media. So thank you for that. Thank you. The Middle East really has been known historically as a place where invading nations go to die. And I don't know if I'm speaking directly to what your issues are, but I would say that U.S. policy, especially under Obama, Biden, and going back, has a network of good things that they do outside of the military, USAID being a case in point. They provide the kind of resources, education, diplomatic endeavors that Mm -hmm. probably is our best case scenario for what we could do on a positive way in the Middle East without taking physical uh, action. So I think... There is that, and there is some room for optimism and hope, but only first if America gets its own house in order. And that's George, That's job one. I think if we don't uh, overcome the kind of uh, uh, nationalistic, frenzified, isolationist uh, approach that many in the right have been taking, if we continue with a more balanced approach, we can have a positive impact. Maybe not be the best country in the world, but certainly we need to be a leader. We have been and we can be. Thank you so much for that. And we'll end it with that. And of course, yeah, the uh, trajectory of uh, nationalism that's happening here. I mean, if we don't have democracy here at home, how can we help others around the world have it or, you know, urge them to join it? Uh, This has been True Talk on WMNF, WMNF Tampa, and PR News is next. And uh, see you at the same time, same place next Thursday. Have a great weekend.